Well, last week I spoke to you about the Christian and the culture in response to the recent Supreme Court decision affirming gay marriage. And we made the point last week that our hope remains in Christ no matter the political climate or the cultural shifts. And we also discussed that our confidence and peace are not achieved through the culture acquiescing to our values, that our calling as believers is not to create a Christian theocracy on this earth. That is not what we are called to do. And talked about our approach to cultural issues has to be marked by humility, by insight, uh, by love. And we ended with kind of making some application that that we have to address our conduct and our conversation and make sure that it is sprinkled with love. And we have to address the issues in our own homes, in our church as we speak of these things. And lastly, we have to address the foundational issues related to gay marriage, what what props it up uh, instead of pitting ourselves against others in a cultural war. And so that brings us to today in which some of you are probably asking, why bother speaking about gay marriage? What's the big deal? Well, I want to offer several points to basically justify why I'm speaking with you today. Um, Why do I have a job? Here it is. All right. Number one, we seek to provide hope to those who struggle with sexual sin. Can we not agree with that? We seek to provide hope for anyone who, and by the way, who all struggles with sexual sin? Everyone has, right, at some level or another. All right, let's just admit that, first of all. We have people in our church who had sex before they were married. We have people who've committed adultery. We have people who have uh, struggled with homosexuality. We have people who struggled with, with pornography and a host of other sexual sins. My, my purpose is not to heap condemnation upon your shoulders or anyone else's or, or shame, but rather to point out that we have a way of restoration, right? That God is willing and able to forgive us, right? Uh, to cleanse our conscience as we admit our guilt, we humble ourselves before him, and we cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ. Now, if you've already received Christ and you are presently in bondage to um, any kind of sexual sin, what I want to tell you is that God has not rejected you, all right? That God still loves you, that God can heal your wounds, that God can, can restore you to a place, once again, where you can enjoy his, his peace and, and, and protection. And he has done this for many of you. I know if I were to ask, some of you would give testimony to how, how God has moved you from a point of bondage to a point where you are enjoying, uh, enjoying freedom. And, and that's not been an easy road. It's been a rather difficult one, but still, you're, you're there, and that, that's awesome. Um, and none of us are beyond being tempted in those areas, even if we're not presently involved in those sins. My hope is that all of our experience would make us advocates for God's mercy, for God's holiness, and, and walking accordingly. I like how the Apostle Paul addressed the Corinthians when he was uh, mentioning some things about their past, and he listed some of their sins, including sexual sins, including homosexuality, and he, and he said this, And such were some of you. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you, meaning it was a thing of the past. I read an article recently by a doctor who was talking about uh, a survey that they, that they took and talking to different patients that, uh, that most people go through some kind of uh, sexual identity crisis, uh, some more than others. That uh, could be the teen years, could be in adolescence. But, you know, you may think as a heterosexual that, you know, you have these homosexual tendencies. And you, and you might be tempted. You might think these thoughts. And there's a period of time where, you know, you wonder, you know, what am I or whatever. And, and, but most people grow out of that, and they gave certain percentages of it. But th- this is the statement that struck me. He said, we presently have more people that are ex homosexuals or count themselves as homosexuals and are no longer that than we do people who are actual homosexuals. Now, that, now that's an interesting thing. I haven't heard that before. But that was an interesting take on it. You know, so much for once you have the feelings, you can't, you can't grow out of it. The point is, is that there is hope for anyone who is involved in sexual sin. That's my point. I should probably just stop right here. If I were not a believer... And I walked into this church today, and I hear some guy get up talking about gay marriage. Um, I'm probably thinking, okay, you know, here, here's going to lower the boom. Um, I want you just to hold on to your horses and listen to the entirety of the series. If you weren't here last week, listen to last week's message. You can find that on our, on our website or on our Facebook page. Um, and then listen to the rest of today's message before you make up your mind that, you know, I'm wacko. I'm probably wacko for other reasons, but I don't think for this one. All right. Um, Next is that we seek to provide clarity. Again, this is the reasons why I'm even addressing the issue. We seek to provide clarity and direction to those who are confused about gay marriage and homosexuality. Some of you have already asked questions about you know, man, it's kind of confusing. I wonder, you know, what is it I really think about this issue? And all these uh, advocates for this, they bring up these uh, reasons as to why they believe it. All right, I, I hope that this series will shed some light, that it will help to equip you. And it's not just because of the recent Supreme Court decision, but it's because we, we get the idea that in this culture, there is a kind of bent or even an agenda to promote homosexuality by gay advocates. With candor, Daniel Villarreal, past editor of Queerty.com, which is a gay publication, said this. We want educators to teach future generations of children to accept queer sexuality. In fact, our very future depends on it. Why would we push anti-bullying programs or social study classes that teach kids about the historical contributions of famous queers unless we wanted to deliberately educate children to accept queer sexuality as normal. I and a lot of other people want to indoctrinate, recruit, teach, and expose children to queer sexuality, and then in all caps, and there's nothing wrong with that. Homosexual author Orvashi Vaid, that's V-A-I-D, declared, we have an agenda to create a society in which homosexuality is regarded as healthy, natural, and normal. To me, that is the most important agenda item. By the way, these are not just kind of has-beens or uh, people that 
have no position. These are leaders within the movement, okay? Uh, then Paula Etelbrick, who is the former legal director of the Lambda a legal defense and education fund. Lambda is the oldest and the largest national organization for gay rights. Says this, Edelbrick says, being queer means pushing the parameters of sex, sexuality, and family and transforming the very fabric of society. We must keep our eyes on the goals of providing true alternatives to marriage and of radically reordering society's view of reality. Let there be no doubt that there is a concerted agenda and effort for the transformation of our thinking in this regard. Next, the reason I do this is because we want to seek to improve our tone and content of our communication. We as a church, and I think the church as a whole, okay, churches U.S.-wide, and everywhere for that matter, we have a reputation of suffering from clumsy pronouncements and misdirected judgments and not of love. Now, I, I realize that is a gross generalization, but that is a reputation that many churches have. Now, we certainly need to address the idea or the issue of sexual sin but I want to suggest that we need to do so in a focused effort within our own church. Consider 1 Corinthians 5.12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? In other words, we are to deal with sexual sin within the church, and specifically with those who are members. For those outside the church, I don't find there's a need to uh, point out a particular sin, or in this case, homosexuality. Their need is Christ. I mean, if, if, I, if I find out that, you know, uh, a couple who doesn't go here is, is, uh, and not believers are, let's say, living together or committing fornication, you can get them to quit fornicating, but what do you have? You still have people who need Christ. That's their biggest need. What does that get them if they quit living together? In, in some sense, I think we get the cart before the horse. By the way, when we think of loving other people, I don't think that we love them in the sense of treating them as a project like a lot of Christians do. I don't, I don't love people so I can give them my spiel about Jesus, and then when they reject the spiel, you know, I leave them. To me, that's gross. Treating people like a project so I can add a notch on my gospel belt. I love people because they are made in the image of God regardless of what they struggle with. Whether or not they accept the gospel does not change whether I love them or not. Far too many Christians use non-Christians as projects, and I find this to be a gross violation of the law of love. Let me add one other thing. We should drop a slogan from our Christian nomenclature that I think has lost its effect, and that is this. Hate the sin, love the sinner. I understand the intent of that, but for those on the receiving end of such a statement, they don't get past the word hate and turn off after the judgment. Just a suggestion. As we seek to improve on our love, we realize this, that we reject a certain ideology 
and not homosexuals in particular. I don't hold every homosexual responsible for believing the entire agenda items that I'm going to talk about today. What I am addressing is a philosophy, an agenda, a movement, a political ideology that clearly defies a biblical worldview. And whatever issues we have with gay marriage uh, is focused then on the justification of gay marriage, which, by the way, is shared by gay and straight people, right? In fact, these are not even items I would entertain in a relationship with other homosexuals unless I am asked or they are unrepentant practicing homosexuals within our church. I don't make it a point to bring up everybody's sin when I'm in conversation with them. Oh, you're living together. Oh, well, did you know? Uh, Oh, you're an alcoholic? Well, did you know? And, And yet we feel the need to have to tell people, you know, and set them right on these issues. And I think that is clumsy at best. We are to have great compassion on those who struggle with such a temptation and offer them love and grace, the same love and grace we would expect when we are involved in sin, right? However, the idea that it is unloving or intolerant to even address the topic is ludicrous, and that's not the rapper. If a friend is uh, coming into harm's way and I have the ability to help them, It is unloving not to help. The culture has turned the very meaning of love on its head because of its fascination with a narcissistic autonomy. In other words, I want to do what I want to do. I want to fulfill the passions I have without any sense of moral restraint. To throw a life preserver when they don't want it is simply not tolerated, when the passions of the body rule the person, never to be subordinated to anything higher. Relationships, male and female, marriage, these are all being redefined. So is the meaning of love itself. When the gay marriage ruling came out from the Supreme Court, Senator Barbara Boxer said, Today my heart is full of joy because the Supreme Court recognized that all Americans should be able to marry the person they love. Well, what is love, according to Barbara Boxer? Well, I'll step back for a second and consider the pro-abortion advocates who claim that abortion is a vote for, you know, love and respect for women uh, and defending the right of partial birth abortions during a U.S. Senate hearing, Senator Boxer assured her colleagues that mothers have aborted their babies, all right, all right, and I'm quoting, and she said here, they have buried their babies with love. I kill the baby, that's love. So now murder is love. My point is that we are coming up against a worldview, a philosophy, a way of thinking 
For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Strongholds, arguments, lofty opinions against the knowledge of God. These are the targets. Listen, my heart aches for those who are so confused and fall prey to this kind of thinking. And so should our hearts break and have compassion, not this fierce judgmentalism and need to set everybody right. Now this might be a good time to deal with one of the most common things said by gay advocates against anyone who disagrees with gay marriage. And that is that you're being homophobic. Homophobic. Now, frankly, I've yet to hear that defined as to what exactly it is I am fearing, but I can guess. Uh, I could be fearing homosexuals personally by speaking out against this. Well, listen, we have gay people within our extended family that I have enjoyed loving relationship with. Neither do I fear losing some kind of voice or, or power structure. I, I don't fear losing my position of power within society. Now, that's another thing that's, uh, that they say that Christians fear. I already accept the fact that people of faith are a minority, and I don't believe in seeking power to gain control, so I don't fear losing the power I don't have or neither desire. So the idea that every person who uh, who has a well-reasoned approach and does not support gay marriage is being homophobic is in many cases, in my opinion, a concoction to control the conversation and to put people on the defensive. When I hear those who support gay marriage speak of some monolithic group of the right-wingers, Uh, the religious right, or evangelicals, you can be sure that the next sentence is going to be about homophobia, a Christian martyr complex, a lack of love, a lack of tolerance, or other sins against the PC dogma. And this coming (laughs) from a bunch who just denied moral absolutes, or decry pushing an agenda on another group of people. The hypocrisy would be funny if it were not so pernicious and wicked. Now, of all people on earth, I would think that we as Christians would have reason to express love and compassion because we are readily aware of our own proclivities, our own sin, that we would approach people humbly and lovingly. I like David Brooks of the New York Times. This is what he said. We live in a society plagued by formlessness and radical flux in which bonds, social structures, and commitments are strained and frayed. Millions of kids live in stressed 
and fluid living arrangements. Many communities have suffered a loss of social capital. Many young people grow up in a sexual and social environment rendered barbaric because there are no common norms. Many adults hunger for meaning and goodness, but lack a spiritual vocabulary to think things through. Social conservatives could be the people who help reweave the sinews of society. They already subscribe to a faith built on selfless love. They can serve as examples of commitment. They are equipped with a vocabulary to distinguish right from wrong, which signifies, or excuse me, which dignifies and, and what demeans. They already, but in private, tithe to the poor and nurture the lonely. And then he went on to say, I like this part, the cultural war is more Albert Schweitzer and Dorothy Day uh, than Jerry Falwell, (laughs) more Salvation Army than Moral Majority. It's doing purposefully in public what social conservatives already do in private. That, I think, I could agree with. Now, the bad news for you is all of that is just an introduction. I haven't gotten to the main point yet, so here you go. All right, all right. The Bible paints a clear picture of marriage between a man and a woman. God created male and female in Genesis 127. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God instituted a marriage of man and woman for the propagation of the human race and for communion with God and for human community, communion with one another. It's a further extension. Listen. It's a further extension of God's image within humankind, reflecting the diversity and unity of the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, diverse and yet unified. And so being made in the image of God and marriage reflect this image of God quality which same-sex couples cannot accomplish. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed, enjoying that community, that unity, though diverse. And Jesus reaffirmed God's command in Matthew 19 when he said, He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And again, we see this repeated in Ephesians 5. Now, in addition, God's disapproval of homosexuality is stated clearly in every major biblical age from the patriarchs in Genesis. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but I just want to mention um, Genesis 19 in the law of Moses in Leviticus 18 to the prophets in Ezekiel 16 and in the New Testament in Romans 1, in 1 Corinthians 6, and Jude. Listen, every person made, and that and includes all of us, every person on earth, is made in the image of God. It's the imprint of God's creative force upon human beings expressed in male and female. A denial of this distinctive uh, humanity feature of male and female is an act of rebellion against any vestige of God in creation. The creature 
is saying to the creator, you are not welcome here. Like dominoes, this rebellion has a kind of progressive nature. It's expressed in a variety of ways. Think of it this way. Think that you have a a prodigal son within your family, and this prodigal cannot stand living under your rule. So what does the prodigal do? The prodigal leaves. He leaves. He may also cut off all communication from his parents. I mean, moving away is not enough. I don't want them to even have my cell phone number. So he, he refuses any communication. It doesn't stop there. He may even, I've seen this happen, change his name. I am so sick of my parents. Or he may even take it further. And I've seen this. Changes his looks. Changes his entire looks. Because he knows that would be rejected by his family as well. Anything that would cause that child to be recognized as a child of his parents, he's going to throw that out. Similarly, the unique connection of being made in the image of God is rejected on many levels as a denial to our creator. Evolution denies that we are unique. I'm talking about macroevolution. Uh, and that means the, the theory that there is no creator, all right, or that we can change from one species into another. That is macro. Microevolution meaning that uh, species change to adapt to a, uh, a particular environment. Not denying that, denying the macro effect. But evolution itself in, in saying that we are not unique, that we are just like animals. We might have a little greater capacity for intelligence or whatever, but there's no intrinsic, substantive way that we are different from animals. That's a rejection. Homosexuality and transgenderism denies God-given uniqueness and value of the sexes. Gay marriage denies the sacredness with sex in the generative process. At all levels, Advocates of such things rebel against the creator. Some have argued. Well, listen, all you're doing is cherry-picking Bible verses. And you don't talk about these other Old Testament prohibitions like, you know, uh, don't eat shrimp. Or you got to wear certain clothes. Or talk about how you know you stoned adulterers. Why don't you talk about that? Listen, such an approach fails to acknowledge the civil and ceremonial laws of God instituted for the nation of Israel that no longer apply to today. This is commonly referred to as the Old Testament law. Israel was a nation state, and the religion was was intimately woven throughout their life, social and political life. Under the ceremonial law, you could uh, only approach God if you ate certain foods or wore certain, certain clothes to convey that human beings are spiritually unclean. Under the civil law, strict penalties were enacted to demonstrate the sinfulness of human beings and the holiness of God. And then, of course, you also had the sacrifices that were, uh, that were offered for the sins of Israel. Now, all of this pointed to the fulfillment in Christ when he ushered in the new covenant. 
And, and the Old Testament law pointed to this fulfillment so that now God's people are not under a, a, a particular civil law or, or, or government, but we can be spread across the world, listen, living under all kinds of, of different countries and civil governments. In other words, what I'm trying to say is the Christian way actually embraces diversity for all people to come to Christ, not just under one nation state. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The gospel is not confined to one nation, but available to everyone, all cultures. If we truly believe in Jesus Christ, the, the, the very heart of the Bible, we, we truly believe in the resurrection of Christ, we have to affirm that the old covenant is obsolete, right? It is entirely consistent with our beliefs to embrace God's moral mandate stated in both the Old and New Testament, but see the civil and ceremonial laws as no longer being valid. That is entirely consistent. And to try to reenact the Old Testament law is to deny the very heart of the gospel, the core message of the Bible. Some will say, well, You know, the Bible has lots of stories about infidelity and multiple marriages. So how can you just be against homosexuality? The Bible does talk about those things. I'll grant you that. But the Bible speaks of these things in a narrative of a bigger point. All right? It doesn't skirt the issue. It it talks about certain men having multiple wives and uh, men being guilty of infidelity. But it never prescribes these things for the people of God. If I were to tell you my story and I were to uh, give you information about certain sins that are in my past, all right, and I talk to you about the grace of God, I'm not adding those details to promote the sin I'm adding those details to show you how great God's grace is, all right? And in being humble and admitting what my proclivities were and maybe are. I'm just being honest about my past. The Bible is a story of redemption for God's people. And the fact that the Bible is honest and realistic about even the dirty details should give us great comfort that God's grace is available to all of us, even in the middle of our messes. Others will say, well, you know, there are only a few verses that address homosexuality, so you really can't make a good case. Why don't you focus on all the sins of heterosexuals and quit being such a hypocrite? Well, first of all, I'm not condoning Christians who go out of their way to harp on one sin, and I'm certainly not condoning hypocrisy. It's not fair to harp on one thing and not admit your own proclivities. I I get that, or your own sins. However, even if every person were a hypocrite, and I would 
submit that all of us are to one degree or another at, at, at some level, all right? And even if there are more verses, and there are, speaking of heterosexual sins over homosexual sins, that doesn't abrogate or dismiss God's prohibition against uh, homosexuality. Now, our hypocrisy should give us pause, should it not? To adjust our tone, all right? To adjust our approach. But the truth of the biblical record still stands, all right? If I were to stand up to you and say that I've gotten 100 speeding tickets, I haven't had that many, although I did get two in one day. I was really proud of that. But... um, (laughs) But if I, were to, if I were to have 100 speeding tickets and then I talk to you about the evils of speeding, that is probably going to fall flat. But even at that, that doesn't change that there's still a law against speeding. <laughs> doesn't mean you can't speak of it. Now, some will also argue against the specific passages on gay marriage and homosexuality on other grounds. For instance, some will say Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was not sexual but it was a lack of hospitality. I won't get into it, but just take it as that, a lack of hospitality. Or they point to Jonathan and David or Ruth and Naomi as examples of gay relationships within the Bible. Or they say homosexuals were not even a recognized class in the first century, so Paul or the other writers could not even be talking about homosexuality per se. It was probably uh, heterosexuals who struggled with some kind of homosexual act. I can't possibly address those arguments and others. I hope that on the face of them, you can, you can see them for what they are. But let, let me share a little story here. I have a local pastor friend of mine that told me about uh, meeting up with a new pastor that he was just trying to greet uh, and, and welcome into our community. And, and in discussion with this new pastor, the subject of homosexuality and same-sex marriage came up. And here's what the new pastor said to my pastor friend. Listen closely. If a person believes that the Bible is actually the inspired words of God, then the only conclusion is that homosexuality and same-sex marriage is wrong. However, we don't believe that it's the inspired and fallible word of God. We believe it's a good, helpful teaching that was mostly relevant in that culture and not today. Although it is inspiring and helpful for us to be the best people we can be. Now listen, I give that new pastor credit for being intellectually honest, okay? And here's the real crux of the issue. You have to dismantle the authority of the Bible to arrive at acceptance of gay marriage or homosexual behavior. It is more intellectually honest to say, I do not accept what the Bible has to say instead of doing all kinds of hermeneutical gymnastics to make it say something it doesn't. But here's our dilemma. How do we communicate the truth of marriage in a culture, and and I include many religious people within that, who do not accept biblical authority? What do we have to say about the topic? That's for next week, all right? But in Ephesians 5, I want to close with this. Ephesians 5.32, we read that marriage is a reflection of the love and unity between Christ and the church. It's a beautiful passage. Juxtaposing this with the passage we read out of Corinthians, that we are fighting against strongholds, I want to suggest that Satan would like nothing better 
than to snuff any resemblance of Christ and the gospel from the face of the earth. Marriage and the church are his targets because he hates the gospel and he hates anything that is designed to remind people of God's love for us. Listen, my beloved, it is worth our efforts to elevate the sanctity of marriage to its lofty position and to love the church by living out the unity that God has given us to enjoy. Because we love Christ, because we love the church, because we love the gospel, we maintain the sacredness of marriage between a man and a woman. Let's pray.